Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I'm so happy to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through Blog Talk Radio. Well, tonight's show will focus on black Carolinians in World War I. For 21,609 young African-American men who called North Carolina home, the First World War meant leaving families and familiar Tar Heel communities. The military service and sacrifice of those tens of thousands of black North Carolinians, however, are not well known among historians or the public. Their contributions individually and collectively have been generally ignored, simplistically rendered, represented by only a few hidden away in disparate and scattered sources are carried to the grave without articulation or preservation. The war centennial offers an opportunity to examine that void and to highlight the collective service black North Carolinians rendered. My guest tonight is Dr. Janet G. Hudson, and she is a historian and two-time winner of the Stephen L. Dalton Distinguished Teacher Award and author of the prize-winning book, Entangled by White Supremacy, Reform in World War I Era South Carolina. Her project, Black Soldiers Mattered, is an online digital Humanities Project that explores African-American soldiers from North Carolina who served in World War I. And it can be found at http backslash blacksoldiersmatter.com. And I put the link in the chat room so many of you can see it. So let me give a warm welcome to Dr. Janet Hudson, to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Janet. 
Oh, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you. So let's start kind of at the beginning. What motivated you to research black Carolinians in World War One? Well, I was approached by a group of historians from North Carolina who wanted to tell the story of how the war had affected the state. But they didn't have anybody that had stepped up to write the, the book about, I mean, the chapter on black soldiers. And so they contacted me since I had written about African Americans in South Carolina. So I agreed to do it. And the funny thing okay. is, I didn't mm-hmm. really know anything about North Carolina. Even though they're close, these two states are very, very different. And I was steeped in South Carolina sources. South Carolina is a black majority state, and North Carolina was not. It's a very different state, so it was a brand-new project for me. And so how would one begin? I mean, this is a brand-new project for you. So what was your research strategy to identify the North Carolina black soldiers? Well, I started by finding what other people had written, and that turned out to both be simple and difficult because there had been practically nothing written. And the few things that were didn't tell much of any story whatsoever. So I started doing just the most traditional things of looking in the archives, trying to figure out what the sources were. And I was really pretty naive at the beginning. But what really helped me was discovering that Congress had dictated at the end of the war that every state create a set of service cards. And that's the name of them. They're service cards for every soldier who served. And so they had these cards. And then I realized, well, these cards could give me a lot of information about these soldiers. And so that became the basis of my research. Um, I did a lot of other research to find information But that was the core of how that began. And then I went to the National Archives to discover the military records, and then they began to link the military story with the North Carolinian story. So take us back to when the war broke out. Now, did they already have uh, black army units? Just give us some historical, give us, an idea of what was going on during that particular period of time. Well, this is the period when white supremacy was at its, you could say at its height or at its lowest point, depending on the perspective you had. But segregation laws had become in the late 19th century, and they were really solidified by World War I. And in fact, this generation of soldiers had pretty much grew up under that. That's pretty much all they had known. That was not true of their parents, but that was true of this generation. So everything was based upon segregation and this belief system of white supremacy, which was premised on African Americans' inferiority. So everything was structured that way. There was a very small military. The United States military was was tiny at the time. And there were African American units but not many of them. Ironically, the military decided not to use these seasoned soldiers in the war. Instead, they were sent to guard the territories 
uh, around what were then Arizona, New Mexico, as well as serve in the Philippines. Uh, some of them it did end up serving, but most of them did not. And so there was a lot of controversy initially about the role that African Americans would play in the war because, of course, there's so much controversy about what serving as a soldier means. Is that a, a term of honor or is that something uh, that you do that might endanger your life? And so there was a good bit of debate, especially in the, at the state level, about the role that African Americans would play. But Congress squelched that when it passed the draft just a few weeks after the declaration. And, it, and that determined quickly that all Americans, men, would be drafted. So with all American men being drafted, first of all, how did they uh, implement this draft? Because right now you're saying that you did have this small military of black soldiers, but they didn't utilize them. They didn't want to utilize them for World War I. So how did they get the word out that they were looking for uh, these eligible individuals to go into the military? Well, the initial draft was for young men 21 up uh, to before age 30 through 29, and it was required that they register for the draft. But, you know, you take it back a century, and information is not what it is today. And so word was sent out through flyers in the community. You were sent a notice that you were supposed to register. Um, in the churches, ministers preached this. There was a strong desire on the part of the leadership to assure that people would comply. Their employers were supposed to tell them about the draft. It was just to get out and register for the draft all over these posters about the day that you were supposed to show up and register for the draft. So did you find that with the churches and the employers and the flyers and everything that you saw in your research, it being an honor to sign up? Are they being strongly encouraged? What was going on during that time? Well, that's that's a mixed story, as most things are. I the the vast majority of the black leadership strongly supported the war because remember, President Woodrow Wilson had said this was going to be the war. Um, for democracy. This was going to be the war to end all wars. This was going to be the, the war that was going to make the world safe for democracy. And these black leaders just ran with that. Uh, the NAACP did. W.E. Du Bois did. And they see this as a call for, you know what we, do, we need to do is support this war. We have fought in every war there has ever been, and we have supported it. And war had often been linked. When, when you serve in arms, that's equated with citizenship. So they imagined serving in the war was going to open up all kinds of opportunities for democracy, particularly for full citizenship rights, which they were not experiencing at this time. So for the leadership, yes, there was a tremendous amount of support and enthusiasm. Uh, at the same time, the white community, you have to remember, they relied very, very heavily on um, black labor. And so this was disconcerting for them. What's going to happen if this labor is displaced? 
there were all kinds of rumors that African Americans were going to be susceptible to German spies, that they would fall mm. victim to these German spies. And that was talked about in many different communities. And in fact, North Carolina was one of the first places those rumors started. And they were really kind of insulting. African Americans were extremely aware of their state of oppression. They were very aware that they were not treated fairly. But that they did not that that did not mean that they were going to become um, spies for the enemy. So this there was a lot of concern about that. Were they going to be loyal on the part? I mean, whites had that concern whether they'd be loyal. And of course, there was some dissension. Um, it was not necessarily the dominant voice, but there was definitely some dissension saying, now, wait a minute, why are we going to fight for this country? So that was a voice, but I have evidence at a rally where that voice spoke up, that voice of dissension, and it was booed down. People said, no, that's not true. That's not what we want. So there's more than one, but the dominant voice was to support the war. So with the dominant voice being to support the war and with the churches and flyers and employees encouraging these men to, to sign up, take us to the next level now because they're signing up. But then how would you know if you had these service cards that they were black or white? The service card had in the very top corner – white or colored, so they're all identified by race. So that's how you know. And so for at least for historians, that's very effective. And, of course, that makes sense in the time period because they think of everything that way. And, of course, the units are going to be organized that way. Um, interestingly, it was not very clear in the beginning because, remember, the United States is having to get geared up for a war quickly. And yes. so they cre create these training camps. First of all, there were state militia units in each state, and these were nationalized to become the Army. So if you could picture 16 different camps starting in North Carolina and going all the way to California, 16 spread out, and this was considered warmer climate. The goal was to get these soldiers from all over the country, get them to the south, get them trained quickly. These were National Guard units or they were state militias that were becoming National Guards that were becoming part of the Army. That was the first round. Then they had to get drafted soldiers. Well, the drafted soldier camps were located all over the country because drafted soldier camps were dispersed according to population, and the population of the nation was not concentrated in the South. That makes perfect sense. And the military strategy was one they had used before, which is you draft soldiers and you train them close to home. They believed that this created unit cohesion. People could logistically get to their camps quicker. They would have support close by, and they would know the people in their community. So this was the plan. That the, you remember the war starts in April. This is getting started in late spring in the summer. This is the plan that was announced in the, the summer. As soon as that plan was announced, governors in the South went crazy, and they said, no, we will not allow this. 
because, remember I said there are 16 camps all over the country if they're a part of drafted soldiers. Only four of those were in the South. One was in South Carolina, right outside of Columbia. One was in Georgia, right outside of Atlanta. And one was in Arkansas, right outside of Little Rock. There was also one in Texas. But the one in Texas was only going to train people from Texas, Mexico, and Arizona. Okay, so that meant if you were going to train soldiers close to their home, that meant since at this point in history 85% of African Americans lived in the South, then that meant they were going to come to these three camps right outside Columbia, right outside of Atlanta, and right outside of Little Rock. And this made the white population very, very nervous. They were very concerned because of their views of black men with weapons. What's going to happen if these soldiers come and train in these camps? And they, especially here in South Carolina, the governor organized um, a delegation to go and talk to Wilson and said, no, do not do this. We want, I mean, we're just not going to allow it. Don't do this. And the Secretary of War, Baker, said, this is ridiculous. No, this is a war. We, this is the practical thing to do. And there was a tug of war that went on for six weeks, and finally the War Department capitulated. And I've actually looked at that correspondence from the War Department as they're passing memos back and forth, trying to decide what to do. And they have to come up with all kinds of different alternatives if they don't go with the original one. And it was just very interesting to see how they discuss this and what they end up doing. But they decide to appease the white fears. And this means that African Americans are going to have to go train in the north and white northerners are going to have to move to the south because they come up with this formula. It's called a three-to-one ratio that no training camp could have more than one black soldier for every three white soldiers. Wow. And therefore, this requires this massive uh, shuffling of soldiers all over the country. And the way this affected African Americans in North Carolina is they were set to be drafted in October. But because the plan has, instead of coming just down to Columbia, South Carolina, they're now going to have to be dispersed to many different camps throughout the North. And these camps also need to have segregated quarters for African Americans, and they weren't prepared for that. So they actually had to create them. So to change the plan and create segregated quarters all over the North, they were not drafted until March. So this is one example of how this structure of white supremacy and the fears of whites affected very, very tangibly African-American soldiers. My goodness. And so you have the drafted individuals, but what about those that just volunteered before they went through the draft? They just said, I want to, I want to join the service. Were they treated the same way and had to go into these uh, segregated quarters in the north? Well, the, the those who volunteered, one, there was a cap on volunteers. So you had to volunteer very, very quickly. 
And in fact, mm-hmm. the best way to volunteer was to volunteer for a National Guard unit. Um, mm-hmm. perhaps one in New York or one in Chicago. And some, some soldiers actually did that. They, I mean, young men, they went to Chicago or they went to New York to join those. It was very hard, but if you joined the Army, you were going to probably be a laboring soldier. There was a specific effort to get African-American soldiers to volunteer to go do some of the early hard work of preparing the ports. These were known as stevedore units. And so they Mm -hmm. were shipped over to France very soon in the fall of 2017. And so that's one way that volunteers were used. The other volunteers tended to volunteer through a National Guard unit. And again, Mm -hmm. there was a cap on volunteering. Now we have a question about the boot camps. Did you see any evidence in your research of mistreatment during the boot camp uh, training experience? Um, Yes, yes, widespread. Um, And the way we know about this is for two primary ways. The NAACP was keeping a close watch, and there would be people who would send letters, soldiers would send letters to the NAACP. So through that correspondence you find in the camps, this ill-treatment, and also the War Department had its own unit that was looking into uh, these racial disparities and how people were treated in the camps. They were called Negro Morale, was a morale officer, and there's a whole folder in the National Archives called Negro Morale. And there's reports at every camp about the morale problem. And these morale officers report on the type of treatment. Oftentimes, uh, they were not given uniforms. This is how we know about their tent quarters. Sometimes they weren't prepared. They weren't given the proper footwear. Some of them were not even fully trained. <clears throat> I will say this tended to come from the worst treatment. It came not for the soldiers who were drafted early, but for the soldiers who were drafted in the second and third drafts. Okay, if you think about the war, the, uh, it gets started in April. The first draft is that it begins, well, the registration begins in June. That's the first call for it. But then you go all the way to 18 that next summer. There are two rounds of the draft. So the people who were drafted in the summer of 18 were put into reserve units, and many of these reserve units stayed in the, the camps in the, um, in the United States the whole war, and those were some of the soldiers who experienced the worst treatment. And so what made it, I mean, why would they receive the worst treatment? One, they're not being trained to be soldiers. They are being used as laborers for local projects, laborers for the camp. That's one reason they're not receiving uniforms. By that time mm-hmm. in the war, there's the feeling that they have enough, and they had they actually. I mean, there's, there's just more soldiers than they need, and so they're put in reserve units. And oftentimes, their officers or white officers who had kind of flunked out in other places. There were disciplinary problems, and they put those particular 
soldiers in charge of these black reserve units. Now, you said something, and I just want to find out. Did they have, though, any black officers? Absolutely. Um, that was another point where the, black, the national black leadership argued strongly that there should be officers. And there was one class, and they were trained in Fort Des Moines, Iowa, very far from the population center of most African Americans, and there was one class, but these officers were serving. There, there are two black divisions, the 92nd and the 93rd, and most of these serve in the 92nd division. But even when they are officers, there are officers above them, but there absolutely were black officers. Okay. Well, we're going to take a very quick break Come back because I want you to take us through BlackSoldiersMattered.com. Quick break. Certainly. Well, welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Well, you have been listening to Dr. Janet Hudson, and we're going to now talk about BlackSoldiersMatter.com. So take us through BlackSoldiersMatter.com so that everyone can know this valuable database that you have put together. Okay, wonderful. Um, I think it's important to first understand what it's based on, and it's based on the service card. The service card was created after the war, and it reflects the whole history history of a soldier service in World War One, And many of your listeners have probably seen these cards. They're not the draft card. 
they're not the registration card, but the, it's called the service card. So what I did is, and there were 21,600 of these black soldiers, and I wanted to create a database of all of them. And each of the cards contain about 26 fields of information. So I had the cards digitalized. Sadly, it didn't take because these were done on a typewriter 100 years ago and the characters just don't come through consistently with modern day OCR digitalization. So I had to go back to um, a different method and that is doing a random sample. So I chose 1,500 using this methodology of a random sample and then with a grant hired two students to type all of the fields from the service card and from that I could create a database that would tell the history I mean, to, about all the soldiers from North Carolina and how they served. So this is how I was able to get a picture of what the entire population of soldiers did and I think that's really what makes my project valuable because until this point you just have bits and pieces anecdotal information but with doing a random sample of the entire population I can much better tell that story so that's what this is based on to try to explain the story of all of these soldiers so if you come on the first page this it might be awkward for people who can't see it but essentially, I take those service cards and make them available to the general public. And I have, there's a list of all 21,600 of these soldiers in alphabetical order. So anyone can go to this website and they can look up a name. If you know someone from North Carolina, if you know someone in that area, if you have a family name, you can look it up and look at the service card of that soldier. And then there's corresponding information about the units, where they served, and then there's a map to help you discern where the training camp was for the soldier, and if they went overseas, half of the soldiers approximately do serve overseas and half serve in the United States. So when you're talking about this 21,000-plus soldiers, I mean, I just want to reiterate that you just said you can put the soldier, at least click a soldier's name, and the card will come up with information about them. Yes, yes. And Which most for many the people, they may not have even seen this, yes. That's right. For from. For this website, and you have to remember this was done by students with a grant, so <laughs> it, it has its limitations, I will say that. It does have its limitations, but it is a fabulous source of information. And I personally have even volumes of more information. If anybody's interested, I'd be happy to give you even more stuff that's not on the website. But the story that's being told on the website is from that random sample of the 1500. But when you go to, there's a link for individual soldiers. Under the individual soldiers, it lists all. It's a complete list of all of the soldiers. And their alphabetical order, you just pick a letter 
and you click on that letter and you will see a comprehensive list of names and then you just click a name and then you will see the service card come up. Now, and to your knowledge, if they were in the random there... sample, it tells you even more. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, if the soldier you picked was in the random sample, you'll get more information. But if not, you'll just at least get the card and the basic information. Right. So there's a question in the chat. Are there similar sites reflecting other states? Or is this North Carolina this, just unique? Yeah, this this particular project is unique to North Carolina. Now, other, because every state decided different things to do with it, some states have made their service cards available online. If they have them, but I know that some of them don't distinguish by race. They might have them all in alphabetical order, and then you would have to figure it out. So different states mm -hmm. have done different things. Some states, you still have to actually go physically to the archive to find them. So that just kind of depends on what states have done. This is my personal project. I mean, these are public records, but creating this website is something I've done. It's not, right. it's not linked to a state archive. Now, you mentioned that 50% of the soldiers were assigned domestically and 50% internationally. Where did they go? To France. The, practically, not, practically everybody, at least from North Carolina, went to France. And also, I uh, will say this is true nationally and it's reflected in North Carolina, about 10% of African Americans serve as combat soldiers. And that, again, was a decision made by the War Department influenced by these values of white supremacy. There mm -hmm. was a great deal of concern. One, there was concern they wouldn't be capable, and then there was also the fear of what it would be like for these men to have arms. So they are restricted in some ways. Plus, there was a belief that these soldiers were better suited, and I put that in quotation marks, this is how white leaders at the time thought were better suited, that African-Americans were better suited to do hard labor. So they were disproportionately giving some of that work to do. So if you look at the soldiers who go overseas, approximately half go, so that would mean about 20% of those overseas are actually serving in combat, and the mm -hmm. others are serving in labor units. And that is not to undermine their work because there were different types of labor to be done, and some of them serve close to the front line. Many of them do very, very, very hard and difficult work. But and when you say hard and difficult, what are you saying? Well, there were stevedore units that they're, they're responsible for the loading and unloading of all the material that comes over from the United States into these ports, loading and unloading of these ports, mm -hmm. men and materials, mm -hmm. very, very hard labor. Then there is the taking of the materials from the ports on the coast, getting them to the front lines. And these were transportation units, so that's the building of roads, repairing of roads. This is a time where you have a, a lot of um, horses are used in this period. You're beginning to get uh, 
trucks and tanks. It's a war of a lot of different things. And then there are soldiers, they were called pioneer infantry soldiers, and they trained with arms as replacement units, and they serve close to the front line, but most of those don't get started until October of 18, and the war ends in November. So mm-hmm. there was never enough time for them to be fully engaged. Mm-hmm. And then after the war is over, laboring soldiers stay much, much longer than combat soldiers because they have to do all of the hard work of restoring the battlefield to agricultural land. They have to do the very unpleasant work of burying the dead. And in some cases that meant reburying because soldiers were put in temporary places and they have to be dug up and moved and put in a permanent grave. So that's an example of some of the very difficult and uh, unpleasant labor. Absolutely. So were any of the North Carolina soldiers, you said some were in the Pioneer Infantries, but can you say how many were actually in the Pioneer Infantries? Um, off the top of my head, I can't. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, that's, one, that's an example of something that you can tell from the, from the website. There's a pie chart that's kind of showing the, the different types of units. Mm-hmm. That they that they have, and then proportionately what where those units served. But the Pioneer Infantry are one of the five types of laboring unit, and they're the smallest unit, the smallest proportion of those. So let's talk about what the soldiers experience after the war, because we talked about during the war. So what have you uncovered in your research about after the war? Well, I'd like to say, to begin after the war, to talk about these North Carolinians as well as South Carolinians who served in the 93rd Division, because the 92nd Division is the largest and most complete division, and There was a lot of discussion um, about whether their service was was adequate or not, whether it was whether they were they lived up to the promise of being soldiers. Mm -hmm. Then there was the 93rd, and that was made up of only four four units, four infantry units. But these four units were sent to serve and fight with the French. They serve in French uniforms with French weapons. And one of these units was made up almost entirely of Carolinians. This was the 371st. So probably the most immediate, you ask about after the war, these soldiers come home in February of 19 parading tremendous pride, very excited. They come home to Columbia, to a crowd, very enthusiastic to receive them, They march through the town. They march to Allen University where they're greeted by African-American leaders and a host of white leaders, including the governor. And at that rally, welcoming home combat soldiers who were decorated because of their admirable service in France, these leaders begin to immediately talk about having the rights that the war was fought for, democracy, mm-hmm. having the mm-hmm. rights of full citizenship, having the rights of what they called a man's chance. And they defined that 
a man's chance was with the ballot. A man's chance was serving on the jury pool, uh, improving the opportunities for education. So there was a very explicit link with their service and asking or demanding, insisting on voting rights. And we often don't think about that. You have to remember, voting rights don't come until much, much later. And oftentimes people think about the civil rights movement in the post-World War II period as demanding voting rights. But it was these soldiers who come home and the African-American leadership who supported the war with the anticipation that this would happen, that they immediately asked for it. And as I said, they came home in February but the black leadership, the civilian leadership, started this even sooner. They started it with Emancipation Day in January. They held rallies even sooner and making it clear that they wanted to make this link between these men serving and democracy at home. So while they had the parade and they had this platform, they knew what they wanted. What was what was going on now? What did the community of whites say when this platform was presented? This is what we want. Immediate pushback. Throughout the war, also the thing that happens is the NAACP began to move in the South, and you began to get these um, small local communities organizing NAACP chapters. And the white community knew this, but they just kind of tolerated it because they needed black support during the war. But afterwards, there was pushing back and pushing back. And, of course, violence broke out around the country. It start, I mean, there was in North Carolina and also in South Carolina as well as other places in the country. There was the concern. There was constant talking about black soldiers carrying pictures of, of French women. And, and it's hard to even know how much of that really happened versus it was a fear of something they talked about because there was always this trope of, you know, black men raping white women. And soldiers were disparaged. Soldiers were treated very poorly early on. Some of the North Carolina soldiers talked about how poorly they were treated when they got home. A lot of disrespect. It was the very opposite of what they had imagined. Well, when you say some of the North Carolina uh, soldiers spoke of how poorly they were treated, did you find any letters or anything in the newspaper uh, to support what you're saying? I yes. Well, sadly, there are not many letters. I, I in mm-hmm. fact, I have only found one one black soldier who wrote three letters. But Mm -hmm. there was an interview done after the fact, and it was in one of these oral history interviews in which this soldier talked about how poorly they were treated when they returned. And in the North Carolina papers, as you begin to have registration and the pushing back and the anger that the soldiers experienced, and in the NAACP papers, you see where interviews are going on and letters are being sent and there's discussion about their poor treatment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
So and even in white correspondence, have, you see all this fear going on and discussing it. All of this fear, right. So you have these soldiers. I mean, they, they went from the field. They came out. They were drafted. They performed their duties as they said they would. And now they're putting up these demands. So what what's happening now? I mean, why don't we see as much information out on World War One and the black soldiers as we would expect? Because as you said when when I asked you in the beginning, there wasn't a whole lot of information. Okay. Why? Let me try to let me try to summarize what it was like okay. in North Carolina. Remember I told you okay. all the ways that white supremacy affected these men? First of all, it determined that only 10% could be combat soldiers. Then it determined they were going to have to train outside their state. Then it determined that they were the draft was going to be delayed until March. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it determined that they're going to be laboring soldiers. North Carolinians were sent to 300 different units. If you were a black soldier from North Carolina, you did not serve like white soldiers. White soldiers from North Carolina overwhelmingly served in two units. And to this day, those, um, the 81st and the 30th, there's a lot of pride associated with those white units because they were North Carolinians. And they, you know, they trained close to home. They trained in camps in South Carolina. And they were proud of that. They served with their neighbors, with their community, with people from their state. They developed that sense of identity and pride. If you were a black North Carolinian, you were sent all over the country. You were spread out. Mm -hmm. Whichever unit you were in, whichever camp you were in, you were a minority. Not only a minority as an African American, you were a minority as a North Carolinian. You just kind of faded in whatever unit you were in. There was no black unit from North Carolina. So do you see they could never have that close identity. And as I've done this research 100 years later to even explain that story, at the time, I don't think it was even understood. People were just sent all kinds of places. And when they come back, they probably came back with, well, you know, I ended up in New York, and I went over to Kentucky, and I was in Virginia, and, you know, all over the place. And I went to France, and, well, I got stuck staying, you know, in Charlotte. So there were so many different types of experiences. Plus, the war doesn't last that long. And they were treated so poorly when they got back. And for those soldiers who did perform outstanding service as combat soldiers, uh, they were treated in some ways the worst. Yet there were soldiers who were decorated. There were soldiers who got medals and awards who were recognized. There, was a, there were soldiers who were officers. But these, it was never brought to anybody's attention at the time. So even mm-hmm. though these soldiers did like all soldiers did, when you look at North Carolinians, they served in every capacity that every soldier could. And in fact, the... Um, the Medal of Honor winners, which were not given at the time, but the Congressional Medal of Honor winners, the only one for years and years and years was Freddie Stowers from South Carolina, served in the 371st. And then Obama recently 
identified another soldier who had been long overlooked, um, Johnson, and he was a part of a New York unit, but yet he had been, he was originally from North Carolina. So there's, these North Carolinians had a lot to be proud of, but nobody told their story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that's a problem. I mean, nobody told their story, but when you think of, as you said, they were dispersed to 300 different units. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. they didn't have that unit to, you know, to hold mm-hmm. up with a sense of pride, as soldiers do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Plus, the Depression hit in the 20s for the South, and people are mired in a Depression. And by the time the 30s come, people began in the United States began to think that World War One was a big mistake. And, and therefore, the soldiers who fought in it were, were just not recognized. And by the time World War II comes along, it's a very different war. There's a great sense of pride. So I think um, the black community has a much greater sense of how World War II affected the community, how people served, than they did in the First World War. And, of course, now all these people have died, and many of them died without their stories being told. And another factor that I think contributes to it is some of the most successful soldiers. Now, there were doctors from North Carolina serving in the war. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. There were chaplains from North Carolina serving in the war. And there were officers, as we mentioned earlier. And some of the most educated and successful soldiers, when they came back, they didn't come back to North Carolina. They went somewhere else because they realized that they were never going to have a chance in their profession if they came back to North Carolina. Mm-hmm. So there again, they don't have that tie to their community. Right. To but you know what? One of the things, as I'm listening to you, what's happening with their families, their wives, their children, while they are serving in the military? Well, they get they get a stipend. That's a very interesting point. And these men, if they're married, they send that money home to their to their wives. And this was a, a problem in South Carolina. Is South Carolinians noticed that some of their domestic help quit working during the war because they were receiving thirty dollars a month as their stipend, and they did, they'd rather stay home and take care of their own families. And in fact, in in Greenville, they wanted to create an ordinance under the worker fight and require these women to work as domestics. And it created a big ruckus in town because people were saying that they couldn't get cooks, they couldn't get maids because these women weren't working. So that's an example of having constantly a double standard uh, where these women now have someone you know, they have a breadwinner that's bringing home more money than they did when they were working in the cotton fields, but yet they're still treating them with disrespect, even though the community is doing everything it can to support the war, including raising uh, money. And what do you mean raising money? Well, in World War One, there was constantly selling of bonds and war stamps mm-hmm. to help fund mm-hmm. the war. And so every community is expected to purchase some of these war bonds and war stamps, and they would divide it into subsets of the community. And so the black community was expected to do their share of 
I guess you wouldn't necessarily call it fundraising, but certainly efforts to use your money to support the war. Mm-hmm. And the black community did their did their they did their share because these were proportioned out to every community. Mm-hmm. So with black uh, with the Black Soldiers Matters website and your database, have you shared that with? the communities in, in North Carolina so that individuals who knew of family members uh, in World War One could share what little they were told or what they found out about their ancestors? Mm-hmm. Yes, I've been to another a number of conferences and uh, college and universities as well as public library presentations trying to link this information with the community. So I've, I've, I've done that many times, and when I do find people, it just uh, just warms my heart because this is what I really want people to know. I want people to know about these men's service that's kind of been ignored, and that's what I hope will happen from this interview, that people will hear this, that they'll explore it, and they'll, learn, they'll make a connection somewhere with a family member, with a community member. Yes, and I and I certainly hope that that definitely happens as a result of people hearing about the database and then sharing that information with others. Well, we have only a few uh, minutes left. Do you have any parting words or do you have any additional information that you have not shared with us that you'd like to do so before we close out? Well, I'd just like to draw attention to the fact that these were young men. Most of them were in their 20s. And they did what their country expected them to do. Some of them lost their lives. But most of them went and did what, what they were expected to do. And I just think it's terribly sad that they haven't really been recognized for that and that, that that service has been overlooked. And I would just like for people to to connect with that and appreciate their contributions. And not only their contributions, but to understand how the deck was stacked against them and to see the odds, all the, all the ways that these ideas around white supremacy shaped everything about their experience. So when these soldiers have been criticized, I think that criticism is sometimes very, very unfair because there's strong evidence that many of these soldiers performed admirably. But even, perhaps, at times when it fell short, there's so many reasons that it fell short. And there's one that I think didn't come out in our conversation, and that is Remember I told you the three-to-one ratio where for every yes. one white soldier there had to be three whites. Well, you cannot, you cannot train an entire division with that ratio. So they took uh-huh. the one full black combat division and divided it across seven training camps. These soldiers never trained together as a unit mm. in the United States or in France. So in some ways, how can you expect the division to perform as they're supposed to when they're never even given the opportunity to train together? 
Yet despite that obstacle, there's evidence that parts of that unit performed very well. So I think that there's constantly criticism that's unfair. And there have been many historians who've begun to relook at this. What's difficult about it is that the evidence you look at is coming from from whites who are steeped in these ideas of white supremacy. So you always have to be careful how you read that evidence. Mm-hmm. But more mm-hmm. than anything, I really, really hope that people will just take a look at these service cards. They tell such an interesting story about the units they served in, the time they served overseas, where they were born, where they were recruited, where they lived at the time. There's lots of information that's very, very interesting, how old they were at the time, when they were discharged. And sadly, if they died, it gives you a family member um, who was contacted about that death. So lots of interesting information. It sounds like it, and there's a question. If they're not in North Carolina, where would they find the service cards? I would say go to every state archives and look about their service cards and find out what they've done with them. And I know mm-hmm. that the the website, um, the name's escaping me, Ancestry.com, has a good many service cards as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing your research with us today, at least tonight. And, you know, we just need to encourage everyone, visit the BlackSoldiersMatters.com website. Also check out the service cards at the various state archives because those service cards will provide you with some valuable information. Well, I want everyone to please remember your ancestors' left footprints, and you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and Afrogenia's Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji and also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Mika Sewell Smith. Thank you for joining research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. And I look forward to you all joining me next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Janet. Good night. Thank you so much.